Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Catch new episodes of The O Show for free, available on all audio platforms, including Apple, Spotify, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. For full video versions of the podcast, head on over to YouTube and StarWorldWideNetworks.com. The O Show is presented by Mayweather Boxing and Fitness. Mayweather Boxing and Fitness is an inclusive, high-intensity fitness experience developed by the champ Floyd Money Mayweather himself. The best group boxing workout in the market, Mayweather Boxing and Fitness. Live from Courtney's, welcome back to the OSHA episode four, 417. Wow. I, I messed you up when I tried to guess 474. I'm nervous. This is my first political interview. This is not my first, but it's we're early on in the early days. How, many, how much media have you done? I've done a round of uh, just kind of initial calls with media. Nothing like formal or official. You never really know. You hear people on the other end of a phone start typing out when you say something dumb, and when you think you say something impactful, you hear radio silence. So I've had like a, yeah. a primary call with folks in D.C. and, and New Jersey, but nothing formal. We'll see. Do they when. ever catch you off guard with a question, though? I mean... Because, again, like, you have to be on your A game with some of these interviews. Like, this one, you could be on your Z game. Oh, yeah. I mean, okay. I know where you live. I know where your parents live. So right. if something bad were you to happen in this interview, is, I know? could figure it out. I'm your ride home right now. So uh, I just outed you as that. Jack is back in his hometown without a car and relying on chauffeurs. But have I been caught off guard? Yes. Our first, not so much by media, but... I haven't, again, haven't done a whole lot of media just yet, but the first kickoff event we had, it was like 100 family, friends, mutual connections at the the golf course here in Long Valley. And I said, let's do an open Q&A. And a couple of my advisors and team said, that's a terrible idea. You've never done that. You don't know what the questions you're going to get are. And I said, no, 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 no. These are going to be the friendliest people that I could possibly have. They're going to be softball questions. And Hopefully we won't dive into any of these on this podcast. We can, but I don't think you want to. Off the bat, it was, John, what's your stance on gun control, drugs, abortion, like just down the list of the most hot topic. The stuff that could really end you. The stuff that you stand up there and say, I hope I don't have to answer a question on X, Y, and Z. And not because you don't want to talk about it, because it's an answer that takes longer than 30 seconds. and. One of my favorite politicians says on issues like that, whether it's uh, you know women's rights, women's health, race, guns, you name it, he goes, that's a kitchen table issue. That's not a podcast, a tweet, an interview. It, it needs a meal and much longer than you know one question when someone shows up at a town hall and tries to kick your teeth in. Well, we'll try to make this as easy as possible. On you. <laughs> I, I actually, love it. This is a monumental episode for me because John Henry Eisman III, he's the first podcast guest I've had that was actually a former babysitter of mine. Yes, I don't know. Like once upon a time. <laughs> once upon a time. I don't think I was hired back that many times. I think, to your point, they your parents favored my sister more than me. But yeah, we grew up across the street, across the cul-de-sac in Long Valley, New Jersey. And it's crazy because I don't think we ever really truly got to know each other. You were five years older than me. Again, yeah, like who were, so you much older than you. And then hang out with them. No, I w- we were just the age dif- difference when you questioned why you needed a babysitter and I questioned why is anyone asking me to babysit. Um, but no, it's, it, it is wild to think about everybody we grew up with. Now, you know, I, as you know, moved back to Long Valley once COVID broke out and yeah. how many people kind of descend back on their hometowns when that all broke out, you get to figure out what everybody is doing. And to your point, I think 
we were talking about, I forget what episode it was, um, the Jordan Belfort episode, when you say that's when my DMs got flooded, people said, oh my gosh, you're doing a podcast, but, and that's when I think we got in touch, we started talking, I was telling you about what I was planning at that time behind the scenes last January about this campaign, and here we are. It's been, what, now, 10 months in the making? 10 months. That's unbelievable. I, well, probably a lot more than that. I've known about it for 10 months. Yeah, I mean, it's our first meeting, you know, quasi-official meeting was last October. It was October 24th. Gathered, I think, 10 friends, advisors, mentors in a room and said, hey, here's what I'm thinking. I, you know, have always kind of had this itch and seen, uh, you know, how important politics is and government is but not been so sure if I should step in, when I should step in, what I should do. Moved back to Long Valley, saw what was happening in New Jersey and said, all right, how are we going to fix this? How are we going to change this? And more or less was trying to get people that would talk me out of doing this into a room and say, no, there's a million other places where you could jump in, you could work with your nonprofit, you could start out somewhere lower. Uh, but sure enough, here we are running for Congress almost a year later. You said it was almost like a running joke in your family that you'd eventually get involved in something like this. Yeah, I, I mentioned my, I think my first step into politics was Long Valley Middle School class representative, and not that that role carried a ton of responsibilities, but from then on, it was the running joke. Mostly when I would get in trouble, it would say, well, your political career is cooked. Um, and then came back a couple of years ago now and was talking to, like I said, family and friends saying, it looks like D.C. is in need of some new blood, some new energy. Our state, you know, as you know, having been one of the people to leave New Jersey, I think we only lead the country in people leaving, whether it's people going to college elsewhere, people retiring, not being able to afford it. And I said, it looks like someone needs to jump in. And sure enough, everybody says, oh, we always knew you'd jump in at some point. And I said, I never knew. And if, if it was going to happen, I was planning it on happening 30 years down the lane, not right now, you know, in my late 20s when I had a nice life going for me in, in Brooklyn, New York, other than everything else going on in the world. Yeah, so like I kind of wanted to talk to you about, and that'll be the premise of this interview, you know, you running for Congress, what, like the why behind wanting to do this, you know, like you said, like your yep. first like little instinct of it, it at Long Valley Middle School, you know, yeah. right here in Long Valley. But, you know, you talk about, you know, people leaving, mm -hmm. you know, like you left for a few years. You know, yeah. You kind of talked about it, like you left... For college, you knew that you were going to come back, but you know, you went to UNC Chapel Hill, you had a year at Pepperdine out in California too, like completely different vibes, mm -hmm. completely different atmospheres. I think people ask this question in a ton of different forms. They go, what was the spark? When did you first jump in? When did you think you were going to do this? When did you know it was going to be Congress right now in this fashion? And I think the answer to that question and why I love like long form discussions and not a three sentence answer on why on your website is because you could talk about all three of them. And, you know, a lot of it is the experience I had in the last 10 years, not being in New Jersey and realizing what it means to be from here, why we all get pulled back in, some, you know, at some point in some way, shape or form. As you mentioned, spent time in California, North Carolina, Europe, worked in Central America, worked in London for a little bit. And in the last five, six years in New York city, that, seeing what's going on in the world and taking for granted your nice little backyard was always part of it and thinking that oh, the craziness of politics over the last 10 years in California and in Brooklyn and around the world will never you know, impact my hometown, my backyard, and sure enough, here we are. So that was kind of the, 
the why that built up over the last 10 years while I was, yeah, I worked in finance for a bit, media and technology for a bit as well. But there's also a story that I haven't shared much about one of the first sparks of, you know, getting the confidence to just speak in front of people and, you know, have the audacity to do something like this was my high school history teacher, who's still close friend, advisor, kind of a key part of my campaign, pulled me out of class one day after I gave a speech and knocked on my desk. He said, hey, we need to talk after class. I said, did I plagiarize something? Am I in trouble? And he said, John, that was, you know, a really great speech. I don't, I don't know if it's that you're a good speaker or I am just so tired of watching people give graduation speeches that are boring, but you should run for class president next year so you can speak at graduation. And I was jaw on the floor. I, no one's ever told me that. I was a quiet kid, you know, when we knew each other all through high school growing up. And sure enough, did that. And that has been someone in my life that anytime I'm making a big decision, thinking about doing something, he always finds his way into my text messages, into my emails saying, oh, what's going on, John? What are you thinking about? What are you doing? So, you know, I talked about the 10 years of getting me to this point. He's been a person that's pushed me over the cliff every time I think about making a big decision. Um, And just having family, friends, people around you that uh, encourage you to take a step that feels like it's crazy. Yeah, because like you talk about, you know, you probably thought you were a quiet kid. Maybe mm-hmm. other people didn't think that. But like for you to go after this, you needed all those experiences leading up to now, right? Yeah. Like you need to know how to network. You need to know how to connect not only with your audience, but with people that, you know, you're trying to buy into what you, your belief is, mm-hmm. you know, what your vision is moving forward for not only your campaign, but what you, you have your ideas are. Yeah. And there's so this, like so many things, like starting a podcast, like broadcasting, like everything you've done, there's not a textbook on, hey, do these 10 things to build, I'm not trying to build a career in politics, but to get elected to Congress in this district, in this year, under these circumstances, there's no playbook. So having not only the experiences, but people around you and, and mapping out the things you've done and having a little bit of confidence to say, uh, you know, I, I've, I've failed enough. I've been successful enough in different places. Let me string this together and uh, put a campaign together. And it's the last thing I did professionally was work at a startup. And during the pandemic, I was the, just prior to the pandemic, I was the eighth hire. Our founders built the company to just shy of 60 people, raised a ton of money in the heat of a pandemic. And that was sort of the last of those experiences where every day there's a different challenge. There's something that needs to be done. You're about to run out of money. You're, you're desperate to find customers. You're desperate to grow. You're desperate to figure out what the next message is, what the next thing you need to build is. And that is translated almost one for one into this campaign. That's incredible, man. And again, just you having the, I guess, intuition to say like, okay, I'm going to do this, you know, going back to what we were talking about, leaving for college, you know, next four or five years, you know, what, what, whatever it is, it's different for everybody. And to come back and have certain experiences, like what did you major in? Because, again, like very business-minded, you know, know how to talk to people, know how to connect with people. Yeah. I think I went into school, people always say, did you have a grand plan to get into politics? Maybe when I first got out of high school – I was a political science major. I thought I was going to go right into JAG school or right into uh, law school, become a JAG officer in the Air Force because 
My cousin had done that. He went to law school, and that seemed like a good path. Transferred schools from Pepperdine to UNC, studied abroad, and quickly it became not what do you major in, but how do you graduate in four years with a degree at all? So I I eked out, I say, with a business degree uh, from UNC's business school, which uh, was a great time and gave me a ton of tools, none of which were all too sharp, but a ton of different things I could do and then ended up in, in finance right out of school. So what, what what do you take away from Southern California and then like right in the heart and soul of UNC in North Carolina down there? So yeah. Completely, again, different atmosphere. Again, coming from Jersey where it's go, go, go in the tri-state area, Southern California where it kind of can be all over the place from my experience anyways, and then down south where things are kind of very laid back. Yeah, looking back at my college experience, I tell people now I couldn't have painted it painted a better picture of what I wanted. I never would have said, oh, I hope I go to California, like it enough to to stay there, make friends and and kind of commit to a year there and then transfer and then study all this. stuff. I never would have known that at 17, 18. But looking back now, I got a taste of the West Coast thinking I was going to be this West Coast guy, this big surfer. I remember Googling schools by the beach and seeing that Pepperdine was a Christian school and my dad being a pastor, I said, oh, they'll definitely let me go there. That's largely how I ended up there after, you know, a lot of financial aid and scholarships that made a school like that possible and liked it enough. But to your point, coming from Jersey, California is a very different place. Mm -hmm. Small Christian school in Malibu, California, within Southern California is an even further different place. So started looking at other places, wound up at UNC, kind of had the classic college experience, big sports, big school, not too far from home. Um, So loved it every bit of it. Still like California a lot. The more I go out there, the more I am confident I love to vacation there. And I'm very glad I have houses and couches to sleep on. Uh, Friends that I met in my time there don't know if I'll ever live there full time. It, to your point, is very, very, very different than New Jersey. Because, I mean, there's a lot of locals, but there's a lot of people from all over the place. Like, I lived out there for one summer. No one's really from California. Exactly. They came from somewhere. When I was there, it was four kids. It was New Jersey, Chicago, Iowa, and Indiana. You know, like, people are from all over the place. They try to get away from the cold. Yeah, and you, I remember I spent Easter uh, one year in San Clemente, California. We drove down from Malibu, and trying to explain where I came from a place. I think our town was founded in the 1700s. We have buildings still standing from the 1600s and or structures at least. And driving to, through California, it's the highway and then kind of this prefab development. And that's everything. Like, there's not as much character. There's not as much history. And I don't want to say that rubs off on the people because some of my best friends are from California, but there is a distinct feel. I mean, there's a distinct feel of California and people know that who, who grew up there, but it's, it's definitely not New Jersey. So what do you think makes New Jersey more, not like authentic in a say, but like more traditional, like people are kind of, I don't want to say more well-rounded either. I don't make people out there seem stupid. <laughs> I, I still live out we there. We can't bash so. on California. I'm flying I, yeah, out there in two weeks. So. I, I still live out West. So they're great. They're great people. Well, I, you know what, why New Jersey, you know, you fell in love with it at a young age and you knew you, knew you wanted to stay here now. Yeah. I, People, when I was in New York, when I was in California, and Jersey people have this weird pride in the state. And then people spit back at us with, oh, you're last at this, you're last at that, you're the armpit of the United States. And 
I, I take that personally, and that's one of the reasons I'm jumping into all this to kind of make New Jersey no longer the butt of a joke. But the other day, I, I had an event, and right after I spoke, someone made a beeline for me, came right up, and I said, oh boy, this guy's going to have a really tough question, or I said something wrong, and or he's just crazy, and he's now become a friend and a big supporter, I had an event at, at his business just this last weekend, and he starts framing this question, which I thought was going to be, why should I stay in New Jersey? You know, kind of the, why do you love New Jersey? What's the character that keeps us here? But what he ended up doing was just describing to me why he loved it. And I think that's it. Whether you're in California, whether you're in New Jersey, everybody has their own why of this is why I love this place. This is why it means so much to me. This is why I don't want to leave. California, it's a lot easier because it's beautiful all the time. New Jersey, you at least need to justify the winter and the miserable weather for about four to six months. But so many people have been here, like we were talking about, on my family on one side has been here since before the Civil War. And that comes with these really deep roots. And we have these really, I think we have close to 600 small towns in New Jersey that have their own governments, their own firehouse, their own police departments. It's super unique to New Jersey. And it's something we all love that you can live in a place where you know, we can go out to the Applebee's for lunch, you recognize people, but it's still not this middle of nowhere uh, place. It, it's these small communities with character, but you're also an hour away from New York City. You could be in D.C. in a day, Boston. You could be in the mountains. You could be on the beach. It, it, From my opinion, and people in California may laugh at this, but I think it has everything. So what specifically did you see? Because again, like your family jokingly knew at some point in some way you'd get involved on some level. Mm. What was it that clicked? Like what was the thing that kind of pulled the trigger for you? Kind of like the, the straw that broke the camel's back in a sense. Yeah, there were a couple almost like lines in news interviews, uh, YouTube clips yeah. I've watched and just moments in, in time over the last 10 years that pushed me into it. I remember... Chris Christie, one of the last conservative governors in New Jersey, two-term governor, was speaking at the Harvard School of Education. And his last line talking to the graduating class was, if I can encourage, I can't encourage you guys more to get into one, either education, what they were all about to get into, but step into politics. Because if we don't have people like you, and I am very far from a Harvard graduate, but he was speaking to Harvard graduates and said, if people like you are not willing to put what they have on the line. Cause in one sense, folks like us who grew up in large part at this, you know, intersection of opportunity, not so much privilege, but a really good life, great families, great communities. You know, in one sense you have nothing to lose cause you have this great surrounding, but you have a lot to lose. Cause you know, Jack, you have a podcast, you have a broadcasting career. If people like us, normal people aren't willing to step into the ring and, and stand up for what you believe in, what you think's right changing the trajectory of, you know, your town, your state, your country, then we're completely sunk. So that was one moment. And then I think if anyone over the last two or 20 years hasn't watched the news and gone, what's going on in the country, you haven't been watching the news. So that was just an overwhelming wave from the last 10 years to say our representatives, whether they're in Trenton and New Jersey, state capitals around the country or in D.C., don't really represent us. They more, more so represent this status quo of, of government and, and leadership. I mean, in New Jersey, the average state politician has been in Trenton for 20 years and then often goes to run for Congress to hope to spend another 20 years in government in D.C. and has had no 
you know, substantive life experience outside of, of this government bureaucracy. And you talk about it so eloquently because I feel like you were called to do this at some point, right? That or you just stick your head in the sand of politics and government for the last year, uh, last July, when I really kind of flipped the switch and said, hey, I think I'm going to do this. You immediately realize how little you know about this, about this world, about what's going on. And it's not, it's like being an athlete, right? You don't want to step up to the plate and strike out. So you practice, you prepare, you train. So a lot of it is that. And I think that's the energy that politics and government needs people, young people that may in one sense be inexperienced, but have the hunger, drive, and and devotion to say, I'm not going to fail uh, for yeah. me, for the people I'm representing. So that's, I think, where your perception of eloquence, so thank you, comes from. No, I feel like a lot of people kind of took COVID as a way of like, I'm either going to be sitting here and doing nothing, or I may as well not reinvent yourself, but to put everything you have into something. Yeah. I'm either right? going to get really good at making bread, buy a puppy or run for Congress. I chose the third. So let's kind of dive into some of the other things that you did leading mm-hmm. up to this that didn't quite click, like you were passionate about, but you know, because I know you worked at Columbia records for a little while. I yep. saw you met John Mayer. Yeah. That's how I knew you worked at Columbia records, <laughs> uh, you know, working in other business ventures. Like what, what, what do you take away from those experiences that kind of breathe yeah. into this? Growing up, I had no idea what I wanted to do and went to school. That first career decision you make, right, is maybe where you go to school, what you study, whether you go to college or not, whether you jump right into work, which I had a lot of friends that that did that and had a lot less student debt than I did. Um, And I remember saying to my parents, what what do I do? What should I major in? And my dad's answer was always economics, get an economics degree. It won't open any doors, but it won't close any either. Then go work on Wall Street for 10 years and you'll be fine. Right. I had no idea what that meant until I met people that quote unquote worked on Wall Street and I started trying to figure out how I could get into this world and ended up you know, interning for a big bank in New York and then getting a full-time job there. I worked in derivatives trading, which I was one of the, there were guys on my desk with PhDs from some of the greatest schools in the world and I was here from the state school, barely got out of you know an undergrad business program. So as I, I was there for just shy of two years, and that was, you hear all these nightmare stories about investment banking and, and finance in New York. For me, it was like learning how to work. No one ever teaches you how to show up to a 6.15 a.m. meeting and get, yeah. not berated, but have to really stand up for ideas and plans, and uh, you know, you're not drawing out grand strategies at 22, but you know, how to get a lunch order right for 30 people and run across the city and get it in time. So you learn how to be reliable, you learn an attention to detail. And then, as I say, I made a classic millennial overcorrection from investment banking to entertainment. And after I knew I didn't want to be in finance for the rest of my life, I started looking at what are my passions? What am I interested in? One of them being music, which is, is still probably one of my biggest passions. I can't play a note, but I'm very good at listening to it, and I love going to concerts. So tried to find someone that would resonate with my story, this disgruntled investment banker that wanted to work for a record label, and luckily found a guy who got spat out of accounting in his 20s and had been working at Columbia Records for close to 30 years at that point. And I joined this team that was doing the what I call the the most boring job at a very cool company, which was saying no to record deals that would come through. So someone would say, 
hey, we found Lil Nas X or Dominic Fike or Rosalia, which were some of the deals that I was lucky enough to work on. We need to pay them this much and we can only get these many albums out of them and we need to sign the deal in three days. So we were running financial, legal, and, and strategic analysis on, on these deals. And then if they were big enough, in you know, there are some artists that you wouldn't believe that we had to go all the way up the chain to the board of directors of Sony and get approval to cut you know, a 40 to $50 million check for an artist. So I was there for two years. Like you said, I met, you know, two of my favorite musicians and, and a ton of, a ton of other really interesting stories there that we could talk about for hours. Springsteen, Mayer, um, Lil Nas, and then jumped into a, a software startup. I met a guy named Shane who was building this company. It was, I think, 10 people when I joined. And he said, here's what we're trying to do. We're trying to work with some of those creative brands in the world and rethink how they work with media, photo, video. You know, we work with some of the big sports leagues, some of the big pro teams on, uh, you know, helping make their content more valuable and easier to work with. So I was there for a, a couple years, and my first job was really learning how to work. And then my last job before jumping into politics was gaining the confidence to do any any and everything else. Again, going back to getting people to buy into what your belief is, you know, because like it's easy to have all of these not just, you know, beliefs and things that you want to put in place, but you got to get people to actually believe in the person. Yeah. You know, I think the scariest, most exciting and humbling thing is asking the people that you've known your entire life or people, some of your best friends, admitting to them that, hey, I have this really big idea. I think I'm going to do it, and here's how I'm going to. And then stepping up and saying, yeah, I'm in. I'm behind you. How can I help? Because it, it would be not easy, but to throw up an Instagram post or file some paperwork and say, hey, guess what? I'm running for Congress and have all of your friends kind of show their phones to everybody else and go, can you believe he's doing this? Like, he doesn't know what he's doing. He's going to fall flat on his face. So to go to your friends and say, hey, please help me not fall flat on my face and start to build this momentum of, you know, starting with family, starting with friends, building this nucleus around what you want to do, and then word starting to spread and networks starting to build. And all of a sudden, you have a team of people who – have hundreds of years combined of experience in fundraising, in public policy, in, in marketing, content, media, and you know, a year in now, and just a couple of days into formally campaigning, you say, how the heck did this happen? And it's just thinking critically about where you've been, what you've done, who you've met. I mean, that's how we end up here, right? 10 years after the last time I saw you. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And like you were kind of telling like some of the guys you met, you know, working at the record level. Like that was always the one thing I definitely knew about my neighbors from across the street, huge Springsteen people. Yep. You would hear it from the backyard late yep. at night. And then we would hear your brother with his band in the backyard on the late nights that we, were, we weren't playing Springsteen. Uh, every time I hear Thunder Road, I think of... That's got to be coming parties. from the Eisman's pool. Yeah, yeah, I think Eisman. As soon as I hear that, I'm just out listening to Thunder Road, yep. Born to Run, out on, in, in the desert in Arizona, and that's all I think. What about. is the what is Arizona's perception of Springsteen, New Jersey, in Arizona? Who's bigger, Bon Jovi or Bruce Springsteen? Well, uh, who I think Springsteen has a bigger reputation because I think a lot of people. I'm not necessarily one of them. I'd have to look into him more, but think Bon Jovi is kind of full of himself. Okay. What, what's your take on that? 
I'm not going to diss Bon Jovi like that. I got to live in but Jersey. No, I, oh, phenomenal yeah. musician. <laughs> if you want to come on the show, you know, call anytime. No, it, I had a, a friend of a friend who went to school with, with his son who runs a, a wine brand now, but I, I just always grew up, grew up on the Springsteen side of that. Yeah. And there's not much of a, in the Venn diagram crossover between Springsteen and Bon Jovi, there's very few people. I mean, the Jenkins, our other neighbor, they were diehard Bon Jovi fans. And that was almost like a property line between the two of us. We were Springsteen people. They were Bon Jovi people. And I still you know, secretly go back to some Bon Jovi songs. But so much of not just the music I grew up on with Springsteen, but the artists that have come out of Springsteen, whether it's Jack Antonoff, who now has a song with him in the last year, The Killers, Brendan Flowers, who now has a song with him in the last year. I, I think that COVID you know, you talk about your podcast kind of blowing up during COVID and getting to talk to some, some crazy people through zoom and around the country. I think that happened in music too, where Springsteen was was probably not sitting at home, but puts a a song together with Jack Antonoff, puts a song together with Brandon Flowers and some of my favorite songs, not just of the last year, but of both of their catalogs. I'm going to have to listen to the one with Brandon Flowers because I'm a huge Killers guy too. I did listen to the, it was Bruce, Eddie Vedder and Tom Morello, the Highway to Hell cover. That yeah, they did. Tom or anything Tom Morello Springsteen. One of the last stadium shows I saw Bruce at, Tom Morello um, was playing with him. Goes to Tom Joad is one of my favorite yeah. songs. I saw Tom Morello play that in a, a basement bar in New York City in front of like a hundred people when he put his last solo project out. But the I'm gonna butcher this story. Brendan Flowers tells it much better than I could. The Springsteen. Uh, song that they did was Dustland Fairy Tale, which is a Brendan Flowers yeah. killer song that he wrote close to 10 years ago now about his parents meeting. And this last year, Flowers gets a text that just says, hey, we should do Dustland sometime. And he goes, and it's signed Bruce. He goes, is this the Bruce? He texts Springsteen's son, who he was friends with, and goes, is this your dad's number? And sure enough, it was Bruce. They did the song. Now the killers are touring. I just saw them at um, Terminal 5 in New York. They played that. It was unbelievable they have a great video out for it too it it puts definitely puts a springsteen twist on what was a great song on i think the killer's third album and a a much more rock song jersey feel if you will to to a vegas band that's i always associated springsteen sound to jersey yeah, I, even like the newest record he put out ghosts i think mm-hmm. is a phenomenal song i just think like oh e street band that's jersey it his, uh, one, his memoir, if you haven't read it, read it. Two, I know you're flying out of the East Coast tomorrow, but next time you come back, enter the lottery for Springsteen on Broadway, see it. It's on Netflix. He's still doing that? He's still doing it. Unbelievable. And if you haven't, it's on Netflix if you haven't seen it. And how he explains where his music com- comes from, which in some sense, they're all folk songs. And yeah. Jack Antonoff described a folk song as explaining and painting the pictures of experiences of other people, you know, your mother, your, your brother, your dad, your family, only to reflect the story and the feeling that is actually within you. So Springsteen does that well. The killers say that their music is British pop inspired, run through the filter and given the flash of Vegas. And I think that's true about Springsteen, yeah. whether it's you know, Seeger that inspires him, Bob Dylan, Roy Orbison, it's just filtered through uh, there's a really strong uh, Jersey filter. I didn't realize that there was kind of a Springsteen Jovi 
Not like rivalry, but... Riff. We'll call it a riff. A riff. I don't know. I think Jovi was probably a decade, decade and a half after Springsteen. So not intergenerational, but a different crowd. Um, I, you know, the, the great Jersey Shore cover bands cover Jovi and Springsteen equally. So I think it's it's equal opportunity in New Jersey for the both. So what was it like meeting him for the first time, given that he's such like an idol it's, in the Eisman household? Definitely. So I texted my dad the morning of because it's not a security thing, but our office was close to 200 people in New York. I think we had another 50 in LA and in the Sony building, there's four record labels stacked on top of each other. And if people would get word that their favorite artist was at the label upstairs, you would just walk up the stairs and, you know, be in the lobby when they came, shake their hand, say hi. So they would programmatically lock the doors to some of the staircases and entrances. So you hear Springsteen's coming. I text my dad. He goes, when's he coming? Could I drive in? I go, the doors are locked. You're not getting in here. And you never think you're going to be nervous because you tell yourself, I'll just be cool. I work here. We basically work for the same people, right? He makes a lot, a lot more than I did. Um, But you walk up to him and less so with a few other people I've met, but I was, you just feel instantly when you're in front of them, like this sense of, of nervousness. Cause you've only ever seen this person, you know, on a stage in front of 80,000 people at giant stadium or on Broadway. And suddenly you're face to face and you're like, what the heck do I say to this person? Who's written hundreds of song do- songs, dozens of which have been the soundtrack to the last 20 years of my life. And you're just, you feel like anything you say, you're gonna sound like an idiot. Um, so a lot of nerves, but if I, if I meet him again, maybe I'll be, be less nervous. See, he probably didn't think that. I'll give you a story because you're the Springsteen house. Jenkins are the Joby house. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, we've become the Dave Matthews band house. You guys are definitely the Dave house. I am not a huge Dave Matthews guy, and I'm going to tell you why. I've never wanted to. I'm not, I'm not an anti-Dave Matthews band fan, but I've never really wanted to follow them. But by following the O'Hara children on any form of social media, I know exactly what's going on in the Dave Matthews Band circle. Yes, again, like, it's a different sound. Declan has fallen in love with it and yeah. he's ran with it. You, you asked me about some of my favorite interviews. You know, mm-hmm. we talked, like, Rob Schneider was great. Tommy Chong, I think, told the most unique, interesting, badass stories I've ever heard in my life. Worst interview I ever did, Dave Matthews. So he <laughs> You did, interviewed Dave? So he, I tried to. <laughs> I, uh, it was an innings festival, so Tempe, Arizona does this innings festival where they team um, with Major League Baseball. Mm. Uh, Last year, again, it was Dave Matthews, it was Weezer, uh, Death Cab for Cutie, a lot of those bands. Um, Dave Matthews was the headliner, and I got a press pass to, you know, write and write a press release for the event, Mm. which was great. Got to interview some great, like, MLB Hall of Famers, which was awesome. And then um, Rivers Cuomo from Weezer. Insanely intelligent guy. Totally out of my class with that (laughs) interview. But Dave Matthews, again, unorthodox fella, you know? And I always say, I feel like I've told this a few times on this show, but he, uh, I didn't get the memo that we weren't allowed to record audio with our phones, which I thought was kind of bizarre. Yeah. Because so I had to handwrite everything in order to put it on print online. Yeah. So I put my phone like relatively close, probably as close to where that microphone Mike is, is to your mouth. And I'm like, Mr. Matthews, I had like three things prepared because it was going to be quick. Immediately slapped my phone out of my hand, oh. face down on the concrete, cracked. The Is that entire, the story of how your last phone the broke? Entire huh. backside of my phone cracked. I literally just got it replaced two weeks ago. 
He's just like, no, 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 we don't have any of that. And then his publicist was like, didn't you like get the memo? You're not allowed to do that. And I'm like, Rivers Cuomo was cool about it. He let me record. I'm like, what the hell just happened? And, uh, you know, he got the three questions out of the way. And then he's like, all right, see you guys. I'm like, that was the worst interview ever. And then, surely enough, I tell Declan and, like, my dad about it. And they're as the Dave Matthews yeah, like, no, guy. No, there's no way. There's no way. What did you do wrong? Exactly. Did you piss him off? Yeah. What, was it your body language? What the hell happened? I'm like, Dave Matthews is just... He's not a nice guy. What are your, have you been on the West Coast in Arizona, a concert guy? What have you done? I mean, in COVID, what have you done for fun is one question, but I know your family is a big concert family. What are you doing? Oh my God. They went to, I was FaceTiming my mom the other day just to check in and she's just like bouncing up and down. She's like, we're at Dave in Saratoga. I'm going to have to call you back. I'm like, okay, whatever. They go to like, there already been like eight shows this year. Uh, That honestly Oddly enough, Dave Matthews Band was the last live show I've been to. Uh, we're going to a few, you know, pre-pandemic small, or pre. It was literally like two weeks before. This was like mm. end of February, early March, 2020. Uh, we got a few shows coming up. I've been fortunate enough to interview bands out in Arizona. They're coming around. Need to breathe. Okay, I saw one that of my one. Favorite yeah. guys. I interviewed them a few weeks ago. They're they're coming out next week. So, you know, we're getting back into it. Guns N' Roses was here. And now the artists are starting tour. to move around. You're going to have people come through town all the time. Right. And, you know, they go on their West Coast swings and then Midwest, wherever they're going. But, yeah, I, I honestly have not done it because, again, I have invested 100% of my time into this. Like, yeah. we were talking before. Like, What do you do for fun? Start. Seriously, like, I golfed a little bit. I snowboard a little bit out there. Now it's just... Making content. Yeah. It's now that people selfish, are like, I'm, able, grow, I'm yeah. trying to grow this, you know? Yeah, I think the other thing we talked about was when I came back home, and in New York, there's this not pride or there's this level of, yeah, it's okay to be a semi workaholic, which I don't really, I think, I don't mean to say that's not a thing for people who have a serious problem with that, but in New York, it's normal to go to work at seven, leave at seven, eight go out you know, with friends, go to a dinner, go to an event till 12, wake up and do it all over again. And then you come back to you know, where your family lives. My mom's a school nurse. My sister's a teacher. My dad's a pastor. My brother works remote for a startup. And you try to live like that New York pace and that New York life because you love what you do. And it's not just my job. Um, I mean, my sister, same thing. Like she's She'll be at the reason why we're filming here is she will be at school for hours after because it's what she loves, but it doesn't feel like, oh, I'm working all the time. Like you don't go, go around and brag and say, oh, I got to work this weekend. You go, oh, I'm talking to this person. I'm doing that. I'm, I'm going here. And it doesn't feel like you're working 12 to 18 hours a day. It feels like I get to do what I love for 12 to 18 hours a day. So how do you take like your own experiences and try and not necessarily get in the minds of other people, but to try and understand how they navigate their lives. You talk about your passions and you get to know people through what, whether it's these events, fundraisers, mm. other things that you're doing to try to get to know the community. How do you try and get inside their brains and kind of say like, okay, I know how to make this a better place because I understand it from yeah. my shoes. I don't, I don't think it's trying to get inside people's brains. I think more or less you, um, there's something that all of us have in common with each other, right? It's just a matter of time until you find it. And like I said earlier, I was sort of the black sheep of my family by going to California, living in New York the last number of years, spending time in Europe and and South America. I get it. 
And yeah, you know it well. And but what that did was it gave me so much experience, not only deep experiences, but just this broad range of things I've done. I remember being in Guatemala running a missions trip and someone said, oh, you went to Pepperine? You must know this guy, Kevin. And I go, yeah, we were in the same fraternity. Yeah. And it, the more you do, the smaller the world gets. So it's in that, to my point about not saying it's getting into people's brains, it's almost being a human. And the more human you can be, the more you can do, the more you can interact with people, the more you can do stuff like this, get your voice out, get your message out and, and meet as many people as possible. The world becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. So it's not uncommon for me to be at an event or at a dinner or just run into someone on the streets and within a seven minute conversation find something that feels like a small world connection, but it's, you know, it's not that crazy. Yeah, that was like always the phrase, like, oh, what a small world. And like the more and more you get out there, like not in like an entrepreneurship mindset, but just like getting to know people from yeah. all over the place, getting experiences out west, down south, back east. Like you get to know and everybody kind of knows each other because everybody's kind of in the same mindset. Everybody wants to branch out. Yeah, and you you always attribute it to, I would love to run the math on some of these quote unquote small world scenarios. Yeah. Like you are running in a lane of podcasters, broadcasters, you know, Southwest media people. And you think, Oh, what a small world I'm running into. And like, oh, not really. Like wow. we've both been curated into this pool of people one way or another. And you're also like, you'll walk out of doing this podcast now with a bit of a mind for politics and think, Oh, I just talked to John in New Jersey, who's running for this. I'm seeing politicians everywhere. And you're just turned on to it um, and, and tuned into it. But one of my, I'm trying to think of some of the best small world scenarios I met. I was at a, con, I was at a, a Coldplay concert once and bought the tickets super last minute. And this is sort of small world of small world. Small world. It was supposed to be their last concert in New York. I just moved to the city. And I was like, oh, crap, I forgot to buy tickets. It's Coldplay's last show. Now they're still touring, so that's a bit of a bummer. Buy the tickets last minute on StubHub, and I'm in this section just to the right of the stage, the lower level of MetLife Stadium at that time, and everybody's got these wristbands on. And I'm thinking, what is the deal? I'm the only one without a wristband. It's this whole section. So I talk to the people in front of me. I go, what's the deal? I start kind of making friends with them and, and figuring out if this is something cool. They go, oh, yeah, we're out on a, on a boat in the Hamptons, and we hear this little girl talking to her dad going, hey, daddy, where are you, where are you playing this weekend? He goes, oh, I'm, I'm playing at Giant Stadium. And they all turn their heads. They go, uh, who are you? He's like, oh, my name's Chris. I play in this band. It's called Coldplay. And all of them are so jaw drop. Yeah. And me, I'm saying, I would have recognized Chris Martin in a second. But you don't think, to what I was saying, context. Like, you don't think, right. I'm going to see Chris Martin at this, on this catamaran in, in, off the coast of New York. And he goes, oh, I would love to see you guys at the show. My kids love you. They hang out all day. Gives them these wristbands to this the last show at Giant Stadium, this after party at the Gramercy Hotel. So immediately, I'm at the concert alone. I got to work the next day. But I say, I'm going to this after party. It was across the street from my apartment in, in Manhattan. And sure enough, I start thinking, oh, they're going to leave. They live in Long Island. They're not going to go to this. They leave early to make sure they can get to the after party. I start walking around the concert. I'm going, hey, you know, are you guys going to the after party? If not, you know, I would love to go. And I'm just shameless about it. I'm a big Coldplay fan, want to be there. I think it's going to be the coolest thing I've ever done at the ripe age of 22. And everybody is just saying, I'm Chris's 
I'm on Chris's management team. I'll lose my job if I do that. Yeah. I'm Chris's cousin. I haven't seen him in 10 years. I'm going to the show. So I'm one of the last people to leave the stadium. No luck. And I just say, you know, I'm going to the Gramercy Hotel. I'm going to see what happens. And sure enough, walk to the front door. This guy's walking out. I go, hey, man, any chance? He goes, you want my wristband? Here's 50 of them. Grabs a whole stack. No way. He was running the door. I walk right in. I met Chris. We talked about the Springsteen song he covered at the show. Hung out there till like 4 a.m. Went to work the next morning. See, that's amazing. Because, like, again, like, that's lesson, like, 101, networking 101, in a sense. Just, like, you never know. Ask the question. Yeah, it, just ask. Um, and that's, to we were talking about how you, how do you jump into broadcasting, to podcasting? Is there this big line you have to wait in? And you said something similar to what I've learned about politics. Yeah, probably, but I didn't find the line or I didn't get caught up in it yeah. because I knew who I wanted to talk to. I knew what I wanted to do. And I just put the call in. I just made the ask. And even when someone said no at first, I didn't take it. I'm now making some philosophical advice on a cold play party. But anyway, you don't take the first no as gospel and that, you know, you weren't meant to do this. Right. At some point you keep knocking on doors. They keep getting closed. You say, okay, maybe I'm, I'm meant to do something else. I'm probably not meant to be a broadcaster or the audience will tell if I'm meant to be a podcaster, but it's, yeah, you just keep knocking yeah. on doors. Learn why it was a no mm. right now. Don't just say no and be like, oh, I guess it wasn't meant to be. Exactly. You know, like it was a no for a reason. How are you going to turn that no into a yes next time? That's funny, like seeing Chris Martin kind of like out of context. You, you don't see him on stage in front of 100,000 yeah. people. I had a, I was at a First Watch diner. I don't know if there's First Watches out here. Well, you that's heard of First Watch? You West Coasters, all, now you're becoming a West Coaster because I think you're doing this. There's no such thing as a chain diner. When I was in California, people would say, oh, we got to go to a, a diner, like a Denny's. I go, Denny's is not a diner. With Denny's all due respect, sucks. With all due respect to Denny's, Denny's a diner is the River Star down the road or the TikTok, one of the more famous ones in Jersey. A diner is owned by Greek and Italian families on the East Coast. You guys, there's no chain It's diners. authentic. I will admit that. But First Watch is phenomenal. All right, you got to check it out when you go out in a few weeks. But uh, I was getting uh, breakfast. This was around spring training time, so there's 15 teams in Florida, 15 mm. teams in Arizona, where I was. You guys are the Grapefruit League? So close. Uh, the other one. We're the Cactus. Those, those other guys in the Grapefruit League. 50-50 shot. Down in Sunshine State. Uh, but I, I, was, I had, like, some coupons, so I ordered, like, three different meals. That's this how scorned by the Mets I am, that I just try to block out all baseball knowledge, <laughs> but that's for a different subject. I don't want to talk Yankees. I know, I know. I don't want to talk Yankees, especially with you, so let's just press on with your first watch story. Uh, so, again, I had, like, three meals. I was in the middle of bulking season. You know, I grew up a really skinny kid, so, like, as soon as I started working out, I'm like, I yeah. got to put on a ton of weight. Um, and, again, I feel like Christianity is... Correct me if I'm wrong. You come from a Christian household. I do. Christianity as a whole, and again, I don't want to offend anybody here, but like, it's way more profound I'm, I'm hard, I think, than it is here. I'm hard to offend. It's pro, I like that you put profound on it. When I went to school in California, Christian school, and would say that my dad was a pastor, I like to call myself a pastor's adult, not a pastor's kid, because a yeah. pastor's kid, a lot of baggage comes with that. Mm. So my younger siblings have that. I don't. Um when I would talk about my dad's church, I'd say, oh, it's a pretty big church, you know, anywhere between four and 500 people. I'd say, that's not a big church. That's tiny. And it, religion and Christianity on the West Coast is almost, it's not few and far between, but the communities of faith out there get 
really big. And you know, if you're in Orange County, California, you know, all of Riverside is going to the same church. All of Newport Beach is going to the same church. There's not like there is in New Jersey, 600 different small towns and five different churches for every single small town. So in that sense, I think it is. And when someone is a member of a certain church community or a certain faith community, they let you know it on the West Coast. Yeah. The East Coast with everything is a bit more buttoned up, including religion. Okay. So again, like that perfectly answers what yeah. my opinion of it is just from my point of view, from my perspective. But again, like I'm at, I'm at uh, breakfast at a first watch and I see this couple, you know, praying across the table from me. I'm just some kid with just scoffing down pancakes and then this just omelet, this enchilada, whatever. And they're just like, how old are you? I'm like, uh, I think I was 19 at the time. Mm. I'm like 19 years old. It's like, that's a lot of food right there. I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I got to bulk up, you know, skinny kid, whatever. Um, and the waitress came by. She's like, is that all? Like, here's your check. And the guy just goes, no, that's on me. Huh. He, he put him on my check. I'm like, oh, wow, that's really nice of you. And in the back of my head, I'm You thinking, were eating like the world was ending. He's yeah. like, this, something's up with this guy. So he's like, yeah, it's on me. Like, you keep doing what you're doing, man. I'm like, oh, thank you so much. And in the back of my head, I'm like, I kind of recognize this guy. Hmm. You know, it's like one of those situations yeah. where, like, this guy is out of his element in a first watch, mm. kind of low-key, just, you know, in a polo and jeans. Who is this guy? And uh, on, the, on his way out, again, like, he's praying at the table before he eats his meal and then... As soon as they get up, him and his wife, and they're leaving, and there's a bunch of guys in Dodgers hats asking for autographs and stuff. It was Dave Roberts, the manager really? of the Los Angeles Dodgers, who paid That's for awesome. my meal. He's the guy who like infamously stole second base for the Red Sox yep. in Game Four, and then they came back. I have a podcast with him tonight, so I get to tell him really? that story. Yeah, it's again small world. You talk, we talked about it. I just remembered that you had an episode with Chad Michael Murray too. Yeah. I don't know. I only went Malibu Presbyterian, a church out by Pepperdine. I would go to an Easter service there and I saw him there, a bunch of other celebrities. And it's again, so if, when you see people outside of their element, you're like, you're not supposed to be at a diner paying for my meal. But once you, it's, and I grew up a massive, I don't say I was a massive One Tree Hill fan because people will rip me to shreds, but I did have an older sister. Everyone went through a One who Tree when, Hill. Who, when she school. would watch it, I lean in and go, ah, I. You know, I'm just, that was when pre Shazam, pre, just as iTunes and Napster were coming out. I mean, legal Napster was coming out. And at the end of the episode, every night it was music brought to you by Manchester Orchestra, Citizen Cope, yeah. bands that are still some of my favorites today. And I would always tell my sister, that's why I'm watching One Tree Hill with you, not because I care about the drama. Secretly, I still and always have loved One Tree Hill, but. It's some of the music on that show, the music on the hills too. I still have Spotify playlists of anything with a great storyline. Sign me up. I don't care what it is. Uh, What was that other one? Riverdale. That's never seen Riverdale. Great storyline. People will beat you up for it because you're a guy and you're supposed to be into guy stuff. People beat me up. We were talking about how I met your mother. You've had Ted and Robin on this show, and two of my favorite. Not just I mean Ted. Mo, not Mosby, Josh Radner is one of my favorite writers, authors, uh, and actors. That show, you say you've watched it four or five times just because you throw it on at night. If I were to count all the times I've just thrown How I Met Your Mother on on as background noise, I'd be up in the dozens of times I've watched the whole thing. I think I have five times at least that I have said, okay, I'm going to start How I Met Your Mother from episode one again. And I've always been on that side of the camp instead of friends. That's what I get chewed yeah. up for. I don't think I've ever watched a full 
can't episode sleep, of listens to the puzzles theme song. Yep. Robin uh, Sparkle songs. Sandcastles in the sand. That's hilarious. See, we're getting the personal side of John Eisman today. Yeah, I mean, the... for the next two years and maybe thereafter, all you'll see is me getting chewed up in the news or tweets, and hopefully someone scrapes this up and finds a, a bit more character and background on me. So to tie a bow onto all of this, because, yeah. again, like you got to be all over the place. Again, we're four days into your official start to your campaign, and you're doing events. Yeah. You know, you're heading to 1776 by David Burke after this. Yep, going out, to, a shout out. going out to Morristown tonight. Um, Chance Healy, good Long Valley guy, friend, huge supporter of the campaign from before day one, one of the other people that pushed me off the cliff. And, yeah, it's crazy. In, in a lot of ways, this has been in the works for the last year and a half, but you can't formally campaign until you're a candidate with the federal election commission and all this stuff, but everything is now rolling. And, you know, all my stuff is, is you know, standard social media channels, John Eisman.com, John Eisman on everywhere, just for folks to, to watch along and, and see what's up. And really the, the timeline of now the Osho until John elected to Congress is the next three months is, just a blitz of getting my name out there, fundraising. You know, we always hear politicians beg for money and fundraise, but fundraising not just to, to spend money frivolously, but to kind of redefine how campaigns are run, who's hired, how you put media out, how you efficiently spread messages. So that's now to call it January. January to April is, you know, getting in front of people physically, getting the vote out for the primary, which is, you know, party, you know, in the same party, kind of nominating the best candidate, which will be in June. And then the general's next November. So what feels like a lot of time, more than a year from now until November 2022, you know, I mean, the last year has gone like that. So just trying to get in front of as many people as possible, get this message out, get as much feedback as possible. So if you guys see anything or hear anything that you hate, you disagree with, blow me up in uh, on my email and my Instagram DMs, just let me know um, because we're, we're kind of building the ship as it sails with, you know, trying to bring as many people on board as possible. See, and that just proves that this is not night and day. Like the first time I heard about you potentially running for Congress was all the way back in January. Yeah. Here we are 10 months later in October talking about it. You know, you're talking about plans the next 12, 15 months. Like obviously that there, there's plans and motions right now mm -hmm. for what you want to do with what your vision is. What's the, again, the five-year plan, the 10-year plan, the 20-year plan? Because, yeah. again, you're a smart guy. I feel like you're thinking way down the line. It, in one sense, there's enough to think about in the next two years that, that is, that's as much line as I can really think yeah. about right now. Um, but, you know, five, ten, there's, like we talked about earlier, it's audacious to think that anyone, whether you're 27 or 87, could be a congressional representative, uh, you know, any any role in our government, and try to be this expert representative of close to 800,000 people that live in, uh, you know, a good corner of New Jersey and talk and vote and, and try to have opinions on issues, anything from national defense to space. So that's enough work to be done. And in terms of a five-year plan, should I be lucky enough to get elected? And you know, things are going great right now, so we're really confident that that's going to be the case. It's going to take not just two, not just four, not just six, eight to ten years to really get your legs under you, to, to understand how D.C. works. Um, and, and this is not to say that you can't have impact in 
six months by the the tone and, and the discourse of your campaign, two years in a congressional seat. But I think people like to hear that you're committed to the seat you're running for, for the change that you're trying to bring. Uh, but also, you don't want to build a career there in Washington. Ben Sass, who's a senator out in Nebraska, says that Mr. Smith goes to Washington, um, you know, a movie with Jimmy Stewart, who's right above you from the uh, It's a Wonderful Life scene. Mr. Smith goes to Washington, Washington would be a really crappy movie if he went down to Washington and then got really tied into a bunch of lobbyists and special interests and never came home. So one thing that you hear a ton of, of, of younger candidates talk about, and I think everybody should be talking about, is term limits and getting people down to D.C., back to where they came from after they've made the change that they want to. So hopefully not in D.C., you know, for too, too long. So the last question I want to ask you, the most important one I'll probably ask you, yeah. is why you didn't go with Guy instead of John Henry Eisman III. Guy. Because that's who we knew you as your yeah, entire that was, childhood. Guy has been the neighborhood name. Guy has been the family name. My sister, whose, whose house we're recording this from right now, uh, is a couple years older than me when I was born, called me Sweet Guy because she couldn't pronounce John. Um, I don't know how much more difficult one is than the other. It's one syllable. It's one syllable, but we won't, we won't say anything in court. Uh, at some point, the suite got dropped, and I was just Guy. And even today, people on my campaign team, volunteers who grew up with me in church or around uh, my hometown say, can I still call you Guy? Can I call you John? I go, Whatever you, whatever's more comfortable. Yeah. I stuck with the legal name John. Um, I'm not Italian, so I don't think Guy would stick all too well. Maybe it'd be good branding in New Jersey, but we're going with John from here on out. John Henry Eisman III. Yeah. It's a mouthful. You can pick G-H-I-3. parts of that. I three. Yeah. Though if you put that as an Instagram handle, it'll be I I I I. So yeah. You're not the fourth. Uh, no. You're the third. So I'll give you the floor. Open camera right there. What, what's your last message to these people? And we'll put your uh, contact information, JohnEisman.com, yeah. available on the screen right there. Like I said, would love for any and everyone from across the country, across New Jersey, to get involved with what we're doing. Uh, give us feedback. Uh, stay stay up to date with what we're doing. The goal of this campaign is really to to bring a generational shift to Congress, create a categorical change in the quality of our leaders, and, and bring a voice to our values, whether they're Long Valley values, New Jersey values, Arizona values, but the value of, of real people, not just representatives down to D.C., um, and, and build states where we can live and, and hopefully rebuild a country that can lead. And what's your next event? Uh, next event is uh, late October here in Long Valley, New Jersey. So you can head to our website, uh, check out the events, and, and sign up for that. Get all the information needed. John Henry Eisman the Third. Jack it's O'Hara. Been it's been this a pleasure. Is, this has been an up. This is the most updated studio we've had thus far. Great. So shout out to Courtney. Thanks for this. This is episode four seventeen of the podcast. We're presented by Mayweather Boxing and Fitness. Get your membership now. Hit it. See you guys. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.